Hi, this is Zoe Routh, your host of the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast, where we explore all things people stuff in leadership, one of my absolute passions and obsessions. I am all about exploring what makes work better by making our relationships stronger. My guest today, well, be prepared to be as excited as I was to speak with him, to listen to this interview, I mean. He is amazing. Ever come across somebody who is so deeply immersed in a topic that you've been obsessing about? He's a bit of a guru around this, and he's done some deep thinking and some deep work around the topic of developmental leadership and some of the big topics that confront leaders today. His name is Dr. Alan Watkins. He is the CEO and founder of Complete, a consultancy specializing in developing enlightened leaders, which is a pretty bold claim, I have to say. Enlightened leaders, teams, and organizations. He's written several amazing books, including Coherence, The Secret Science of Brilliant Leadership, 4D Leadership, Competitive Advantage Through Vertical Leadership Development, Wicked and Wise, How to Solve the World's Toughest Problems, which he co-authored with Ken Wilber, who is, how do you describe Ken Wilber? He's a philosophical godfather of integral leadership development, vertical leadership development. So one of the foundation theories that I build all of my work on. How do we help leaders grow and evolve their leadership maturity and thinking so they can be more effective in a very complex world? So he's written this book with Ken, Wicked and Wise, and Crowdocracy, The End of Politics, which I think is amazing, co-authored with Iman Stratonis. So in our conversation, we were there. We started off by talking about his first book about HR, which is The HR Revolution, Change the Workplace and Change the World. And we start there and we go all over the place in terms of looking at how we can change, how we make decisions, how we can accelerate learning and development with different people so that we can have more leaders making better decisions with these wicked type of problems. It's a very rich conversation. I took pages of notes. I'm sure you're going to get heaps out of it. So enjoy. Alan, I'm so excited to have you all the way from London and to investigate, interrogate, and hear all your perspectives on things leadership, on things HR, on things developmental. There's so much we want to dive into. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Zoe, and I'm excited to chat too. Okay, well, let's start with the latest book. I know you have a series of them, but this one's come out. It's the most recent one, Change the Workplace, Change the World. And it seems like a rallying cry or a celebration or an incentive for HR leaders. Why this book? Why did you get stuck into HR? Um, well, we work with about 100 multinational corporations. And uh, the people we tend to end up talking to first is either the CEO or the HR director. It was really to try and help HR directors understand what's going on. And the world's changing extremely fast. COVID being another accelerant on that change. So COVID has really just sort of collapsed the entire evolution, uh, 10 years of progress into three months. And so many companies are now realizing, uh, if they didn't before, that people are our most important asset isn't just a soundbite. It's really, really true. And, and people were sort of tossing that phrase around and have been for years. And now people are getting it to another level. And at the front sharp end of that transformation in the people agenda is usually the HR director. So Nick Dalton, my co-author, and I wanted to write a book saying, look, actually, some of them are really struggling because their own function is maybe still stuck in the 70s. So we wrote a book about really the past, present, and future of HR. So, that, so the book's actually called The HR Revolution, 
the subtitle is Change the Workplace, Change the World. But the way that the publishers did it <laughs> is they put the subtitle front and center on the front pages of uh, 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 or the cover of the book. So it's the HR revolution, change the workplace, change the world. So hopefully HR leaders can read that and know, you know, the journey they've been on as a function. Um, and we wrote it right up to 2050, like, you know, what's going to be coming in the next, you know, 20, 30 years. And some of the things we wrote about when it was published in February, we said, ah, oh, this won't happen until 2025. They're now happening. I mean, so there's been this time compression. What's, what's an example of that? Uh, flexi contracts, you know, people now working from home and realizing, you know what, actually, it, it works working from home. I want a, a different sort of contract. And some of the things uh, I was on with a call with a number of uh, CHROs yesterday, uh, sharing people, you know, so companies now realizing that actually some of the capability they uh, need for the future, and particularly in the digital landscape, doesn't exist inside their own company. So they're going to share employees with other companies. Wow. So there's going to be flexible contracts coming in, not just in terms of, you know, can I work from home, you know, all the time or some of the time, but also can I work for a competitor company while I'm still working for you and still have the benefits? And we wrote about that in the book that, you know, this will probably not kick in until 2025. It's happening now. That's really remarkable that organizations would be willing to let their people do that. Is that because of the shortage of those specialists means that they've got a little bit more bargaining power and so they can opt to do that? Or is there is there a benefit to allow your team member to go and work for the competitor? Um, well, it, it obviously, you'd have to manage what exactly they're doing for this competitor. But there's it's partly because, you know, talent, the sort of talent that you need, talent management's got to be much, much more forensic than it's ever been before. And uh, some of the stuff that companies need is in such short supply. Um, and sometimes the stuff that you need from those talented people doesn't mean a five-day-a-week job. You know, you need people. So rather than have them as suppliers, one of the other changes that we talked about is the supplier relationship is going to change dramatically. Um, it's going to be more of a partnering rather than a supplier relationship. So rather than get a suppliers in, force them through some procurement hoops and, you know, beat the shit out of them on price and all of that kind of, you know, you're going to partner with these people and they may actually work for you two days a week, but they may work for a competitor two days a week because you don't need them five days a week. So rather than sort of fill their time with nonsense, which will bore them, is you use them for the time that you need them. So it's possible to set up a sort of win-win relationship. It's a win for you. It's a win for your competitor. It's also a win for the person you're employing. Uh, as one of these partners. Um, so we'll see also organizations having what we call a semi-permeable membrane. So the old view of the world is companies, you know, have a very hard boundary. We know who's on a full-time employment FTE, who isn't, and it's a hard line between us and the outside world. That's going to change. It becomes much more fluid, much more semi-permeable with partners and uh, people being shared. And is that what you mean by forensic in that the technical requirements for an individual or the skills that an individual individual has sort of gets narrower and narrower and that's that lets them be able to have uh, scope to work for other organizations because that skill might be narrow, but it's only required for a couple of days. Is that what you mean by forensic or have that, you got That's a part of it. I mean, um, we've built a bit of technology in complete called network analysis partly because we realized that um, the org chart that many companies use is really 1910 technology. Uh, <laughs> if you and I say we're talking on yeah. 1910 technology, we'd be putting 
you know, in UK terms, 10 pence pieces in a phone slot, you know, waiting for the beeps to go and trying to speak to each other. So there's virtually no other aspect of organizational life, you know, particularly today, where we're still relying on 1910 technology. So the org chart is dead. It's a very, very poor representation of what's going on. So we we built some sort of network analysis uh, where you look at how people are connected to each other. And what the evidence shows, and we've done, you know, quite a a number of these across uh, various multinationals, is that the organizational model for the future, the sort of operating model, is what we call a three-layered networked organization. So you will have these very narrow uh, forensic experts, people who are extremely competent, but in a very narrow field, and you just you don't need them five days a week, you need them a couple of days a week. Uh, so you'll have those types of people, and they'll either be at the customer interface or you know in the factories or on the line. And then you'll have a sort of strategic brain, you know, making all the directional decisions. And then at the core of the company, you'll have an integrating layer. So the whole notion of silo is going to evaporate, geography is going to evaporate, category is going to evaporate, and organizations will be three-led, networked, fluid organizations, much more agile that work in swarms uh, with scrum masters, not team leaders, scrum masters, organizing swarms where they'll swarm on a problem, fix it, sort it out, innovate it, drive it forward, and then put it into maintenance or BAU, and then they'll swarm onto another issue. And this will happen because we're all working from home, you know, transnationally. So it's a much, much more different type of system. And the network analysis shows you how close you are to that kind of thinking and way of operating already. And the interesting thing is that most companies are already moved that way to some extent. It's just the people leading those companies still look at the org chart and think it shows something of what's really going on and it doesn't. Mm. Um, So it's already happening. So it's pretty exciting. That is really exciting. I like the swarm concept. That's different to holacracy, or is it related? So holacracy being the autonomous mini units within an organization with a certain degree of ability to make decisions for themselves. How is this the same and different? Okay, so one of the seven books uh, I've written so far is called Crowdocracy, which is what happens beyond holacracy. So just very briefly, as you know, the holacracy was a, is a way of, you know, at the core is a way of making decisions. So if you look at the evolution of decision making in complex systems, you know, it started with sort of mob rule. Well, it starts with anarchy, where every man and woman for himself. You start with anarchy, and then you get mob rule with some thug with a big stick ruling the roost. And then eventually you kind of get the autocrat who grabs the reins of the mob. And if you have 10 people on an exec board, Lots of companies still operate autocratically. Usually the CEO is the autocrat. It's a command and control type idea. So it's one V9 on the exec board. So the exec board debate, there's lots of chat. And then the autocrat says, okay, I've listened to what you all said. I'm making a decision. The answer's X. And everybody goes, oh, oh, well, we're going to have to go along with it, I suppose, because the boss has spoken. So that's one V9. And then you get co-leadership, you know, mum and dad, the parents, usually the CEO, the CFO, occasionally the CEO, the COO. So you get this sort of king and the queen ruling in in historical terms. So it's a 2v8 system. And then, of course, what happens is is that induces uh, parent-child dynamics, you know, with the rest of the exec board trying to drive a wedge between mum and dad or the king and the queen. And you get courtiers and all that sort of nonsense. And then there's a massive leap forward to a democratic process so it's clear that co-leadership, two heads are better than one, so that's better able to handle complex problems more than autocracy. 
But democracy was a massive leap forward because it was six v four. So in the debate at the exec board, you know, we argue, argue, argue. Right, let's put it to the vote. Six people vote in favour of the motion, four against. Uh, motion carried. So democracy is three times more effective than co-leadership or mum and dad because there's six brains uh, involved in the decision rather than two. So that's why everybody thinks democracy is fantastic. But the downside of democracy is it bakes in dissent. So you've got four people who are outvoted who are then permanently offside and spend their entire lives trying to undermine the decision that was made. And this is why you hear many organisations People are going, oh, I really hate the politics around here. Well, you've built it that way. You've built a democratic system and it will be political. You know, what do you expect? And so beyond democracy, there are three other levels. There's sociocracy, which is an attempt to get to beyond 6v4 and, and the dissent and trying to get everybody aligned. But you get stuck in consensual hell. So it usually fails and people <laughs> drop back down to democratic process and then mistakenly believe democracy is the answer. So holacracy was quite an innovation. Holacracy is where you get to 10-0. And then crowdocracy, which is one of the books I've written, it's called Crowdocracy, subtitled The End of Politics, which we can come back to. So crowdocracy is how do you get to 10,000 V0? So how do you do holacracy at in, scale? In an organization. Yeah, in an organization, right? So how do you get all 10,000 employees aligned behind the goal? So you know, networked organizations uh, is part of that. So if you look at network analysis, understanding who your influencers are, you know, where they are in the organization and what type of topics they're exerting influence on is part of the way of doing crowdocratic process. Figuring out how you can, in the new world, you need speed and agility. How do you align 10,000 people? Well, you need to do some network analysis and look at how your system's really working. You need to change your decision-making process and the way that you involve people in decision-making. And if you do those two things, you can massively speed up. And in a blurred world, speed and agility is going to be a massive part of the new currency. That's remarkable. So I'm thinking about this now. So you've done your network map and you understand where the influences are. So the question, there's many questions that are popping up. One is, you said, you need to change your decision-making process. Hmm. How? How do you do that? Well, it's a different sort of debate. So again, if you look, take the exec board, 10 people, uh, what you'll find in the room is, you know, three or four voices dominate. And that's profoundly unhelpful. So, you know, the, the introvert in the corner, who may, by the way, have the killer idea, sits there quietly, was about to say something, but there was a noisier voice that just overspoke. And they're going, well, I had a better idea than that, but oh, I can't be bothered to do the battle. And so they stay quiet. And so often you don't mine out the smartness and the wisdom or the cleverness in the room. Why? Because you've got no proper process for having the conversation and the debate. So... You do something called integrative decision-making, which the guys from Holacracy talked about, right, which is you run the conversation very differently. So when we did this a few years ago, I was coaching the, uh, the ops board of EasyJet, uh, one of the uh, big European airlines. And I said, okay, well, let's make a list of all the problems you're wrestling with. And we came up with, I don't know, 20 issues. Okay, so pick the biggest and the ugliest one. And they picked one. How long have you been stuck on that issue? Two years. I said, okay, and this was a big team. This was 17 people on this team. So it was a big team. And I said, okay, uh, in the next hour, I'm going to get all 17 of you to agree what the answer is on that issue. Uh, and they all started laughing because they've been stuck for two years, right? 
And so then I taught them how to do integrative decision making. And literally in about 45 minutes, all 17 people agreed on the answer. And they were then sort of embarrassed because they go, oh my God, why were we stuck for two years on this? We just figured out what the answer is in 45 minutes. So you run the, very, the conversation very differently. You know, you have six rounds and you involve people and you get their reactions and you get them to sort of focus on a solution and proposal making. And then you flush out all the objections to the proposal. And rather than that becoming a bun fight, you, you change the way that you see objections. You see them as ways of improving the proposal. And so it requires quite skillful facilitation. But as I said, in 45 minutes, 17 people who'd been in dispute for two years all agreed on a much better quality answer. And they all felt a sense of ownership of that answer because they were all involved. So it's a very different way of running the process. Oh, my goodness. Yes, it is. So let me just, if we can just tease it out a little bit, the integrative decision-making process. You said there's six rounds, but everybody gets a chance to have a voice. So if you're starting it off, how do you start people off with this? Well, first of all, you'll have a bit of an exploration of, you know, what is the issue? So somebody uh, explain what's the problem we're trying to solve here? You know, what's it about? Some, give the room a sense of what the problem is. So you have to chat about that enough so people kind of go, yeah, okay, that's really the issue. So you need to tease that apart a bit. So let's assume we've got pretty clear definition of what the issue is. So round one is you start with a proposal, you know, and whoever is closest to the issue often will kick us off. And the good news about this is the proposal can be terrible. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that good. It's just a starter for 10. So we really lower the bar is, well, I think we should do blah, 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 blah about this issue. They go, all right, well, I'll write that on the, on the flip chart. Let's write that down. And so you start off with that proposal from somebody in the room. One of the things is, is that doesn't um, have to be the person who's problem it is if Doug has made the proposal Doug is just starting us off this is not Doug's problem this is the team's problem so that's an important shift in mindset right is it's collectively owned right from the start so we don't all say oh Doug's got a problem Doug's useless no no this is the team's issue so we start there and um, once you've kind of got the issue out on the table what we do then is is get clarifying questions do people understand what is being suggested by Doug on behalf of the team as a way of moving forward? Do they get that yes or no? So what you've got to do is manage that closely so they don't put up counter proposals under the guise of a clarifying question. So you've got to watch out for people cheating the process here. So you've got to be pretty well trained in the process to make it work right. Mm. So once you've done all that and everybody gets the opportunity to ask a clarifying question, they may not have one, which is okay, but everybody gets the opportunity to ask. And then you'll go to, you know, getting their reactions. And of course, this is what slows people down is when you go to the, the reaction round, people often, you know, say all sorts of things. Well, I didn't like it, you know, da, 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 da. And uh, by the way, you have to say it with such a beautiful English accent. <laughs> it comes across so much better. <laughs> I didn't like it. Yeah, I didn't fabulous. Like it. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, you, and you go around to every single permanent person in the room is get their reaction. Now, Doug, who made the proposal, is listening to all these reactions and going, ah, oh, I can see this isn't going to fly, you know, because he's heard all people's reactions. And you, you stop people reacting to each other, right? That's important. They're just getting a reaction to what's being proposed. And so once you've had the reactions, Doug then gets the opportunity to amend his proposal or not. 
So that's the sort of amend round, round four. And he might leave it as it is because he doesn't know what the answer is himself. And then you get into, okay, well, if we see what's being proposed, is it worth giving a go? As the Australians are, give it a go, mate. Is it worth giving a go? Yes or no? And a lot of people go, uh, yeah, but. Okay, so yes, but is no. <laughs> it's, not, it's yes or no. So yes, but that's a no. And what you then do is you flush out all the objections. Well, why won't it work? And then you list all the objections, and then you have a bit of a bun fight in the room, is you get everybody to try and collectively problem solve, how could we improve the proposal that would remove that objection? And then people come up with ideas of how to... So you gradually fold in all the objections to the proposal. And once you've done that and, and struck them all off, is you then go back to a workability round. Okay, now we've cleared all the objections. Let's go around the room again. Is it workable? Yes, 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 no. Ooh, new objection. So you flush that out and you make another list of objections. And so you keep going round between round five and round six until nobody can come up with other, any objections and the whole room has refined the proposal that it, it suddenly it's working and all the things that were worrying me about what we were planning to do have been integrated into the proposal, which is why I'm prepared to support it. So you don't need what you get in democratic process, which is sort of cabinet responsibility. Mm. You know, oh, well, I know you didn't really, but you're going to have to, you know, you, you were outvoted, so you're going to have to toe the party line and you're not allowed to let anybody else know that you didn't vote for it outside this room. And of course, the head of HR goes out and, you know, that person's team said, how did it go? And well, the decision was X, Y, and Z. And they can see on their face that their boss didn't vote for it. So then you get passive aggression and resistance. Mm. So this integrated decision-making just dissolves all of that because everybody voted for it. This is beautiful. So you don't get that nonsense. Yeah. So I can understand why the big shift for teams going into this would be having to stick rigorously to the process because... Well, that's why you need good facilitation because... yeah. Left to yeah. their own devices, the team don't. But it's really interesting. I've taught this to loads and loads of companies now, and they start using it themselves spontaneously. And, and we do do a train-the-trainer process. So we go into organizations and teach an organization how to do it for themselves. So they don't need us there. But they quickly pick it up. And what's interesting is over time, a team self-manages it. You know, they go, oh, no, 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 hang on a minute. It's, we're, still, we're in the reaction round. You know, we haven't come to da 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 you know, so they self-manage over time. But in the early stages of teaching them how to do this properly, you need pretty robust facilitation mm. uh, because most teams in, in their ability to have conversation with each other are so ill-disciplined. Um, so you've got to instill a bit of discipline. Yeah, I find that with a lot of different creative thinking processes as well. You really do have to religiously stick to the protocol and the systems to get the result that you want because everybody sort of jumps to the end. I love that you can, that people start to adopt it as they see the proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. Mm. Um, mm. That's fabulous. And so that is all outlined in which of your books? Uh, well, that's in 4D Leadership. 4D Leadership. Okay. Yeah. So as I say, there's, I've written, I've written books on leadership and then also books on how to solve the world's toughest problems. So Crowdocracy uh, was one of the ones on how to solve the world's toughest problems. I love how you just say that so easily, uh, solving the world's toughest problems, like pass me the cheese. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the first one I did with Ken Wilber was, was called Wicked and Wise. So the, so the solving the world's toughest problems is the Wicked and Wise series. I've done three so far. So the first one was with Ken. And that really came about because actually I was sat on the, on the couch at home watching 
the news one morning uh, and seeing a story about the failing health system. As you know, I was a physician uh, for 12 years and I used to work in the health system. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've actually heard this identical story almost on a monthly basis for the last 20 years. It's the same story. It was really interesting. I thought, wow, that's, I got really curious about that. I thought, well, you know, we keep hearing this narrative about how the world's changing so fast. And then there's things like this that never change, you know, endemically intractable, complicated problems that never seem to get any better. So I got curious about that. And it turns out there's a technical term for those types of problems. They're called wicked issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not wicked in the sense of evil, but wicked in the sense of super complicated. So politics is one of them. Climate change, obviously, poverty, affordable health care, education. I mean, there's a long list of man-made problems that beset the world. Criminal justice is like an oxymoron, right? And so there's all these issues. So Ken and I ended up writing a book called Wicked and Wise, which is what makes a wicked issue a wicked issue? And what would be a wise way forward with any of these issues? And so we created a template that if you applied to any of those issues, you'd start to break through. So that was the wise bit. So that was what the first one in the series was called Wicked and Wise. And then the second one was called Crowdocracy, talking about, um, I suppose, this integrative decision making is probably best detailed in Crowdocracy as applied to the political system, as the example. But it can be applied anywhere. I mean, we've been teaching it in businesses for ages. Um, so crowdocracy. Then I wrote one about the future of the food industry called Our Food, Our Future, mainly because food will get us before AI gets us. A lot of people are very interested in AI and you know when the machines take over. But we'll have a food crisis way before we have an AI crisis. Food crisis in which way? Supply, quality? Um... All of it, because... Um, If you look at this, currently 7.5 billion people on the planet, uh, by 2050, 9.5 billion. And there isn't enough farmable land to feed 9.5 billion people. And we've got climate change happening. So it's going to be climate change-driven crop failure. And we're already seeing that. I mean, down there in Australia, you know, you've had your own issues with climate change and the fires that raged through December and January, February, right? And uh, it still doesn't necessarily get people to change what they're doing in relation to fossil fuel. So it's remarkable how close to the disaster do we have to be before people wake up and actually start to take radical transformative action. And so part of the problem is, is they don't really understand the nature of the issue they're facing. Why not? Because it's a wicked issue. That's why we wrote the first book, right? Mm. Saying, look, it's not the fact that the planet is heating up. The real problem with climate change is not enough people understand the issue. And I don't mean the issue of climate, the issue of what has to happen in order to affect change. So there has to not just be some great tech, some carbon capture and storage tech. There has to be a change in the mindset of human beings. Enough people basically have to care about the issue to uh, invest in the tech. You know, governments have to care enough. I just want to check something. Is that the same for all wicked problems? Is that the lever that needs to be pulled is a mindset or values piece or not? Is that a truth or is just that example that you gave me? Uh, No, so we go in in the um, uh, first book, the Wicked and Wise book, we go into the sort of six dimensions. uh, What makes a wicked problem a wicked problem? And the first thing is it's multidimensional, which means there's an I, we, it dimension. There is something about human belief and human values, like if you don't change that, then people's motivation to do something about the issue 
never changes. And that's why, you know, you don't see an improvement because people aren't motivated to change it. So we've seen recently in the sort of Black Lives Matter movement and how that sort of washed across the world with protests and take the knee and all of that stuff, right? Now, there's a very small parochial example here in the UK in Oxford, you know, one of our big university cities, where there's been a statue of a guy called Cecil Rhodes. And Cecil Rhodes is the guy who originally gave his name to Rhodesia and now Zimbabwe was a sort of colonialist. And, you know, depending on your perspective, you know, some would see him as an imperialist, racist and all of that. So there's been a campaign amongst the Oxford students, undergraduates for about 10 or 15 years to take down the statue of Cecil Rhodes. But it wasn't until this last week when, uh, you know, the sort of Black Lives Matter agenda sort of washed across the planet where uh, what was called town met gown, which is a lovely phrase, you know, where the people of the town uh, got together with the people who wear a gown, i.e. the undergraduates, and the town and gown met, you know, in a mass protest. And for the first time, it looks like they will actually take Cecil Rhodes. The undergraduates on their own could get nowhere with the university. The university would just kept fobbing them off. But now people were mobilized because there was two things happened is belief has changed. That's an interior eye thing. And then there's been a mass scale. I, lots of people have kind of joined together. The town and the gown have joined together to do something different. So that's the I, belief changes uh, or values change. The we, we connect together uh, more effectively, town and gown, to do it. What's the it? Remove the statue of Cecil of Rhodes. So that's one of the six qualities of a wicked issue is it's multidimensional. And without the I change and without the we change, the it never changes in a sustainable way. Oh, my God, that's so powerful. Oh, um, so this brings me to a existential question, maybe mm-hmm. that I've, I don't know, sure, like, actually. We always get to the existential <laughs> questions eventually. <laughs> it, it may not be existential question, but it's certainly a question that has been gnawing at me or I've been gnawing on it for some time. And knowing about the complex world issues that we have and knowing that these are only solved with later stages of leadership maturity, and that may be a frame through which could be mistaken. What I mean by that is that we need more leaders to see the complexity and to deal with the complexity. So sort of addressing what you've talked about in all of your books, you know, these these are wicked problems. We need this kind of thinking to help address them. We need mature leaders, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we get enough people there fast, faster, I should say, because in developmental leadership, my understanding, it takes a long time for people to be able to get to the stages of leadership maturity where they can think in a complex way and self-aware enough to make those interventions. Can we speed it up? Will it happen? Um, Will it happen? Don't know, is a simple answer to that. But can we speed it up? Absolutely, we can. Accelerated development, like vertical development, uh, as we talk about in the trade, and this is really crucial. So the metaphor we use for vertical development, I mean, there's, there's lots of different uh, metaphors, is a proxy would be age, right? So the problem is a lot of the leaders you're seeing may be 40, 50, 60 on the outside, but on the inside, they're still 14. So they've got an arrested development. There's a level of immaturity, and it's fairly obvious, you know, if you look at some world leaders, you know, throwing tantrums and tweeting 11 o'clock at night, you know, ridiculous statements and stuff and sort of thing you'd expect of your teenage son. And then you see world leaders doing that and go, oh my God, you know, what's going on? And the problem is they've got arrested development. They're sort of disabled 
So they've actually, they're oper- operating with a disability in their own maturity. So they've got a maturity disability, if you will. And uh, we only need 10% of leaders to really mature to a level of sophistication to create a tipping point. So we don't need everybody. 10% did you say? 10% is what you need for, to tip a system. You don't need a 100%. So you need enough really wise people to tip the balance. So that's lowered the bar in terms of how many, how many mature people do we really need in the system to tip the system. Uh, yeah. You need 10% really mature people and they will tip the system. So our company, Complete, has been very much focused on working with companies, including those in Australia. I mean, we've got a, a fantastic client called Culture Kings doing some fantastic stuff in retail. They're a sort of streetwear urban outfitters based out of Brisbane. And, you know, given a digital world, you know, we're, we're teaching people all over the world how to wake up and grow up, you know, how to become much more mature, much more sophisticated in the way they approach any problem. So you only need 10%. And if you really know what you're doing in terms of helping people to mature, you can do it much faster. So the game that we've been, what we've been sort of figuring out over the last 25 years of doing this work since I left medicine is how do you help a human being mature much faster than normal? And so that's what we've been sort of interrogating is left to their own devices. Most people never mature. You know, they still remain 14 on the inside for the rest of their life. With a little bit of guidance, the sort of rule of thumb is it takes five years to move up a level. Mm. Uh, But we've seen that with really forensic, careful coaching, you can move somebody up one or two levels in 18 months. So you can go much faster than most people. With coaching? Yeah. Because that provides a mirror and some introspective space and reflection space. Uh, it's more than anything, it provides challenge. So we've got three, three values in, in complete, which is challenging. You know, we, we're not there to be your mate. We might want a couple of tinnies on a Friday night, but, you know, we're not there to be. <laughs> Sorry, I'm dropping into the vernacular again there. <laughs> I don't know if that would pass muster, to be honest. That one was a bit dodge. <laughs> <laughs> An English version of Aussie accent, yeah. Yeah, we're, uh, we're not there to be your mate. We're challenging you to greater performance. So we're challenging, but we're also compassionate because we realize it's tough. So, you know, we're, we're compassionate in the way that we challenge, but we're also cutting edge. So those are our three values, uh, challenge, compassion, cutting edge. Um, so with really good quality challenge, so it's not, you know, there, will it go away and, you know, contemplate your navel for months. You know, we haven't got time. The clock's ticking. So we're there to enable you to level up in gaming terms, you know, move up a level of capability, of sophistication, of maturity as fast as possible. So challenging, you know, got some cutting edge processes like network analysis, like, you know, we'll track a leader's biology for 24 hours before we'll start coaching them. Uh, why? <laughs> why Because does... uh, you can see what's going on. Yeah. How does that help? Uh, well, you'd be surprised, Zoe, if I recorded your biology for a day, I could pretty much tell exactly how you're running your life without ever asking you a question because how you're running your life bleeds into your biology. So let me give you a fun example about that. Um, I was coaching the CEO of a big credit card company in Europe and uh, I got this woman's uh, biology recorded, just a simple heart monitor. Basically, we're tracking her, something called heart rate variability. So we tracked her biology for 24 hours and I said, look, before we start the coaching, I'm just interested to know, uh, how's your history exams going? And she went, how do you know I'm doing a history exam? I said, but you are, aren't you? She went, well, yeah, I, I, I am. But how do you know that? I said, oh, I can see it in your biology. 
completely how, spooked her. How the hell could you know that she was studying history? That's what she from... said. <laughs> how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you. So, so one of the things you can extract when you're looking at the fluctuations in somebody's heart rate, you can tell what's happening to adrenaline levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a normal human being, adrenaline levels should be high during the day, lower in the evening, and basically off at night. Now, in this particular woman, in the first two hours of sleep, she had this enormous adrenaline surge. Ooh. You know, it was higher in those first two hours of sleep than it was during the day. It's like her head touched the pillow and she started immediately burning a load of fuel as she reviewed her entire day. So it's like her head touches the pillow, she kicks in a load of energy and fuel as she reviews her entire day. And we see that in people who are very retrospective. So I said, well, you're, look, you're a woman of 52 with no children, so you, you'll have a bit of time on your hands. You're a very bright woman. Uh, so a very bright woman with time on her hands is going to be doing an exam. And given this retrospective pattern, it's going to be a history exam. It's a simple deduction. Wow. <laughs> I don't know it. that I would ever have come up with that deduction. Oh, my God. That is yeah, very spooky. And, and what was spooky was it related to her leadership. I said, I bet when you have your board meeting, you probably spend at least an hour before the board meeting reviewing last month's minutes. Have you been talking to my PA? I said, no, no, it's the same retrospect. And the reason you're struggling with your leadership is you're leading by looking backwards. So you keep telling your exec where you don't want to be and what you want to move away from and what was going on last year, but you're not clearly articulating where you want to go to the future. You're not articulating the future. You keep articulating the past. That's why they're struggling to, to help. That's why you're struggling to move forward in a company because you're talking about the past, not the future. So when, interestingly, when we coached her out of that and helped her to much better articulate the future, we measured her biology six months later, the pattern had disappeared. Oh, my God. So we could objectively prove we'd fixed it. Cutting edge, Sabi. That's awesome. Alan, that's, that is cutting edge. So we've got network analysis. We've got your 24 biology. What are some other cutting edge processes that you use well, one of the things people think I'm being disparaging when I say, you know, some of these leaders are 14 on the inside. I'm not sort of being judgmental about that. We can measure that. So we can measure your ego maturity. Like, how old are you really on the inside? You know, and of course, the 14-year-olds think they're very wise and very mature. <laughs> By definition, they're not. So we can quant that. So we've got this whole range of assessment instruments, whether it's looking at your biology, your emotional intelligence, your value systems, your ego maturity, your behaviors, your network, your influence in the network. We've got a range of these vertical assessments where we can peg you. And so one of the things we're trying to do is to say to the assessment industry, look, you're measuring the wrong stuff. Mm. The whole of the assessment industry, and it's a multi-billion pound industry, is following something called a, a descriptive methodology. And it's describing leaders, either describing their typology you know, in a sort of Myers-Briggs type way or Belbin or an Enneagram or something like that, or it's describing their personality like a Hogan, you know, the, the big five dimensions of personality, or it's describing your strengths like a Gallup strength finder. But they're all descriptions of you. And now as fascinating as they are, I go, oh, that's really interesting. That described me. I, you know, I do like wearing a white shirt. You know, oh, wow, it's amazing. How accurate is that? It can't predict the future. And in fairness to those instruments, they were never designed to predict the future. But companies are still wasting millions of dollars on this stuff. And what they really need is not descriptive assessments. They need developmental assessments. They need an assessment that can say, look, you're at a level of a 14-year-old, and this job needs a 20-year-old, or this job needs a 36-year-old. 
So of course you're going to fail because you're not at the level of sophistication or maturity that this role actually needs. So developmental assessment, not descriptive assessment, is what we really need. I use the leadership maturity framework that was developed by Suzanne Cook-Grouder. Do you have something similar like that? Yeah, I know Suzanne very well. Yeah, I know Suzanne very well. Um, and so uh, that's very good. Once you've used something like that is to peg them, at, um, uh, you know, that they're an ex- expert, not an achiever, not a pluralist, not a str- uh, an integrator, is not only it pegs them in terms of some of the issues that are going to be arising for them, but it also gives you a next step. So when you use a vertical developmental framework like that, you can not only describe where people are, but it immediately sets up a developmental journey for them. That's right. And it's, it's instruments like that that we need to replace all this personality profiling and typology and strength finders, because that's frankly, as interesting as it may be, it's a waste of money and a waste of time, and it keeps companies distracted on measuring the stuff that doesn't really matter. Wow, that's powerful. So you have your own leadership maturity type of assessment? Yes, we do. We've got a suite of these assessments. Again, being cutting edge is, and the reason we built them is we went out to the market to try and find some company that could do this for us. And what we found in the market just wasn't forensically precise enough. You know, and it goes back to my days as a doctor. You know, if you're trying to figure out what's going on, it's no good sort of taking a Polaroid photo. You need a CAT scan. You know, the Polaroid photo is not going to cut it. You need a CAT scan. So we built all these sort of metaphoric CAT scans to give us really forensic definition on what's really going on with this individual, this leadership team, this organization. And so, you know, you can therefore, once you've got a really precise diagnosis, you can intervene and transform the individual team or organization much, much faster because you've got forensic precision in your diagnostic. That's bloody brilliant. Alan, we have gone over so much wonderful territory and haven't really scratched the surface (laughs) so i want to there's so much more i'd love to discuss with you we're gonna have to wrap it up and i'm trying to think of a wrapping up question apart from you have all these fabulous books and we'll post links to them all for the listeners in the show notes so people can click on those and get the ones or all of them like i'm going to go and get to help boost their leadership maturity and thinking what's your key message to readers and listeners about what they need to do next Well, um, first of all, be really curious. You can completely and utterly transform your own life, the lives of those around you, you know, your team, your organization. It is possible. That's part of the reason I'm writing these books is to share with people what is truly possible. You know, we're not helpless uh, in the face of some of these wicked problems. We, We really aren't. There is a lot you can do and a lot you can do really quickly to transform your own life and the life of the people around you and the life of your organization. So be hugely curious. And if you want to reach out to us personally, we're incredibly responsive. Um, as I say, we work all markets, all, all sectors all over the world. So we're more than happy to respond to anybody. What's the best contact for you guys? Where can they find you? Um, you, can just, you can just email me, alan, A-L-A-N, at complete-coherence.com. Or just look me up on the internet. You can find me. Just Google Dr. Alan Watkins and you'll find me. You'll find some of the TED Talks I've done. uh, Or you should find our website, completecoherent.com. 
Well, I, for one, am absolutely delighted that I've found you and had this conversation. Is It's given me hope because I'm seriously, that question that I was um, wrestling with has been bothering me. You know, how can we affect change? The world needs something different. And if it's only 10% that we're aiming for in our companies or organizations and globally, then hell yeah. <laughs> You've got a chance. We've got a chance. Ellen, hmm. thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast today. Okay. Nice talking to you, Zoe. I got so much out of that interview. It was such a pleasure to meet Dr. Alan Watkins and to explore his thinking about so many different topics that I'm also obsessed with, which is about leadership development into and for complexity in this crazy world that we currently find ourselves living in. I think probably the biggest takeaway is that decision-making process where we can get more contribution, collaboration, and avoid the traps of democratic approach or dictatorial approach or whatever other approaches which aren't crowdocracy type of approaches. So I think that is one of the key takeaways about how to do that systematically and thoroughly so that you can get agreement and work an issue until you have the best solution possible. I think that was amazing. The other thing I think is amazing are his TED Talks and his books, and I will put links of all of that in the show notes. His material is well worth pursuing. I guess the other exciting thing for me in this interview was the fact that we only need 10% of people to grow into these later stages of leadership maturity to achieve a systems change, to tip the system. And 10% is achievable. So that gave me a spark of motivation, enthusiasm, and inspiration to go ahead and keep doing what I'm doing, to keep educating leaders about how they can do things better, how they can lead better, how they can connect better with individuals, build better cultures, think more strategically about bigger picture issues, and make a significant difference, in not only in their businesses and their personal lives, but on the planet itself. There you go. I'm all revved up. That was fantastic. Whew. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. In the meantime, live well, lead well.